As you probably know, our summer theme this year is labels. We label each other by many names, depending on the context of the subject at hand. Almost as soon as we learn to communicate with language as toddlers, we learn to quickly recognize and name people. Mama, Dada, that usually comes first. And by the time we reach school age, most of us have learned to group people by names, nicknames, and classifications. We can tell grown-ups from children, friends and relatives from strangers, and before long we can separate folks out by age, race, class, ethnicity, disability level, and eventually we throw in things like sexual orientation, country of origin, and political persuasion, among many others. And in order to communicate with each other about each other, we have labels which allow us to paint other people with a broad brush. We are hardwired to do this, dating back to when our ancient ancestors lived in tribes and had to identify the friend from the foe quickly and accurately in order to survive. We are programmed to be wary of the other until we can know enough about them to feel safe in their presence and then hopefully develop mutually beneficial relationships with them. And we are hardwired for that, too, as the social animals we humans are. But let's come back to our labels and the way we see our world and the people in it. We've learned to label people quite early on in life and sort them out into groups of good and bad, safe and dangerous, trustworthy and not to be trusted, wise and foolish. We have prejudices and stereotypes drilled into us from our families of origin, our peers, teachers, religious leaders, television, radio, social media, through the Internet, and on and on. Can we change and adapt our viewpoints on these groups as we mature and grow older, hopefully wiser? Let's plow right into it. Let's start with the two labels we commonly use to identify ourselves and our neighbors politically. We are constantly bombarded today from news media, social media, and political ads with the battles and struggles for control between liberals and conservatives. I recall a quote I've heard for many years in several forms, and my research indicates it probably originated, originated in France in the late 1800s, and it goes something like this. If you're not a liberal at 20, you have no heart. If you're not a conservative at 40, you have no brain. I'm sure we would get some disagreement in this room on that one, but this seems to imply that we will, in our youthful years, believe that through our government we should take care of the needy, the infirm, the aged, the immigrant, or asylum seeker, regardless of the cost. And further, that by the time we reach our middle-aged years, we should have become knowledgeable about the importance of those costs and the need to control them and spend within our means or leave many of these problems to be addressed by non-governmental means. Now, this, of course, is it's an oversimplification of the many complex issues facing us as a society which governs itself and has to decide how to tax and how to spend. But we do have these stereotypes in place in our media and in our society. Our political system of governing through competition between political parties arose pretty soon after we started our constitutional federal government in 1789. 
Our perception is that today, most Americans are Democrats and Republicans. And that's kind of true. According to a January Gallup poll, 29% of Americans identify as Democrats, 27% as Republicans, for a majority total of 56%. The surprising thing is that 42% of us now identify as independents, the largest percentage in recent history, and growing. A CNN article from 2012 quoted independent voter Jennifer Cummins of Kentucky. If you say you're a Democrat, that must mean you are a left-wing liberal with no personal responsibility. If you say you are a Republican, you must be a right-wing millionaire who doesn't care about others. Now, if you follow the news on a left-leaning news channel or a right-wing one, or if you follow any social media, you'll get the impression that those stereotypes are pretty much how each party views the other. No wonder, then, that more and more of us identify as independents. Full disclosure here, that includes me, and I've been an independent for over 30 years. I could not join any particular organization where I disagreed with some of its key policies. That was both of them. But like Forrest Gump, that's all I'm going to say about that. <laughs> now, <laughs> most of the Republicans I know are not millionaires, and they do care about people. Most of the Democrats I know have lots of personal responsibility. But the stereotypes from labels do indeed drive us apart, as they have become more narrow, and we have become more narrow-minded these past few years. Is it possible for us to live in peace with each other even when our differences seem more vitriolic and divisive than ever? Could it even be possible to persuade our opponents to compromise and reach some practical middle ground on such emotional issues as we face today? First, uh, let's take a look at, so far as we know, what does not work. If someone walked up to you at a social gathering and called you a name like idiot or libtard or similarly disparaged a political leader you may favor, I suspect you would probably walk away in disgust, more certain than ever of your desire to defend your position. When you see these kinds of phrases bandied about on biased news shows or social media, you'll likely have a similar reaction, and you should expect a similar response from followers of an opposite path from your own. How then can we communicate with probable enemies while maintaining our ethical integrity? In his book, The Righteous Mind, Jonathan Haidt, after studying and conducting much research into how our minds and emotions work in tandem, came to appreciate the seemingly dated and simplistic techniques described in Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People. If you want to persuade someone, he advised one to begin in a friendly way, to smile, and to be a good listener. And to never say, you're wrong. You're trying to convey respect, warmth, and an openness to dialogue before stating your case. Mr. Haight describes Carnegie as a brilliant moral psychologist who grasped one of the deepest truths about conflict. And he used a quotation from Henry Ford to express it. 
Mr. Ford, who probably may have sold more cars than anybody, and was also noted for treating employees in a, in a well-paid and, and safe environment long before it became the fashion. He said, if there is any one secret to success, it lies in the ability to get the other person's point of view and see things from their angle as well as your own. Now, I'm no genius. Joni will attest to that. But if you want to be successful, you could do a lot worse than learning from successful people like Carnegie and Ford. And Mr. Haight goes on to stress that if you really want to change someone's mind on a moral or political matter, you'll need to see things from that person's angle as well as your own. And in summation, he says, empathy is an antidote to righteousness, although it's very difficult to empathize across a moral divide. Difficult indeed. And nearly impossible when you're convinced that you're absolutely right about any subject and your target is absolutely wrong. Can we indeed empathize and look at even our most intensely held beliefs from both sides now? Can we even admit that a person who holds a political or moral belief opposite our own could have in his or her own mind a justification just as strong as our own? I cannot tell you that any of this will work in any particular case. But I will make a strong suggestion that we find kinder language to express our opinions and actually reach out to those who may disagree and listen with an open mind and an open heart before attempting persuasion. We may say, well, there's no use trying because we'll never change their minds completely on an issue, so what's the use? The use is we could do some good by communicating with and showing respect to each other and perhaps find ways to tiny compromises that leave us just a little better off than we were. There is an old saying that the perfect is the enemy of the good. We would not throw away a new medication for a fatal disease if it only cured 40% of patients. So why would we abandon all attempts at opening lines of respectful communication if we only have a small chance of improving everyone's lives? Sorry to hear about Mel, but I'm going to mention him. I know that Mel is and some others in our congregation and UU Faith are working with an organization called Better Angels to further communication between what we call reds and blues. I would urge us all to avail ourselves of this program or others whenever we can to see an opportunity to open lines of communication regarding our important issues. We cannot ever expect that we will all agree on most political and moral issues. Mark Twain said this about our differences. It were not best that we should all think alike. It is a difference of opinion that makes horse races. Given that I've made a career from horse racing, that quote has always appealed. <laughs> but he's saying much more than the basis of that one sport. His horse races reference celebrates our diversity as a species, where differences of thought have led us to evolve to the civilized society we now see in most parts of the world. 
We are getting better almost in spite of ourselves. And the more we can get together and talk things out, the better off we'll be. Our very mission statement here at UCL includes embracing diversity. We would do well to recall that that diversity should also include diversity of thought. Consider the debates over our welfare systems designed to help those in need, whether temporary or long-term. Many of us take the view that our government should be in the business of providing relief to those in need. But when we enter into a debate with those who disagree, we need to be aware that they have often witnessed firsthand those who would game the system simply to avoid work and taking responsibility for their own lives. I recently heard from a business owner of a young man who showed up for an interview for a job at a blue-collar company. He stated that before starting the interview, he wanted the interviewer to know that he couldn't do early work as he gets up at 8 o'clock. He could never work past 3 p.m., and he doesn't do work on ladders. Upon being told that he wouldn't be a good fit for the position, he then handed over a form for those folks to sign, saying that he had sought work and been denied. Now, I have experienced this phenomenon before where I work in, in hiring for my business. And I've heard from those on the front lines of health care, in emergency room settings, of Medicare patients showing up with expensive electronic devices and other accoutrements suggestive of a more lavish, lavish lifestyle. They say that all pol politics are local, and we are all, to some extent, influenced by the examples we see in our daily lives. It is only natural that we will form opinions based in part on what we see with our own eyes, along with what we are told by government leaders, news media, or social media. And we will be strongly influenced by what we see as in our own best interests so that we may meet the economic and safety needs of our families and friends. So, if we want to get along with our neighbors and perhaps find that elusive middle ground that seems totally absent in our government these days, we might want to consider beginning the process by listening and understanding, rather than starting off with, you're wrong and I'm right. We have all come to this place from different directions, with different opinions and beliefs, and we have created a holy place for ourselves because we listen to each other and we care for each other. Our first principle, as Glenda mentioned earlier, tells us about respecting the inherent worth and dignity of all people. I think it's being first is no accident, and we can make this earth a better place when we remember that it all starts right here. As our hymn this morning reminds us, we are indeed living for each other and we can show to all a new, a new community. <laughs> 